Bicon, bisexual icon, wink, uh, an Airstream lover. That's like a trailer? Yeah, like an RV. When have you been in one? Oh, a lot of times growing up. I used to think they were the height of luxury. Ooh. What kind of tea are you into? Well, I have a sore throat right now, so this morning I've already had... Ooh, I've... the music ends and you've had what? You've had what? The suspense. The suspense. The suspense. The suspense. I've had um, Earl Grey and Peppermint. Wait, I'm sorry, two? Not at the same time. Uh, no, I know not at the same time, but like two teas already? Yeah, because I'm sick. Oh, you're sick. Yeah. Have you ever drank orange juice and milk at the same time? What are you talking about? Like if it's breakfast, did you ever have to go? Probably not. Did you ever have to go to school early in the morning and they had to give you, and they give you breakfast? No. Because you get dropped off early from your parents? No. Well, I did that program, and they always give you milk and orange juice at the same time. And then you're a kid, so you drink it, and it's disgusting. Like, are you putting it in your mouth at the same time? You're just drinking it back and forth, like one sip and then one sip, which is what I imagined you were doing with those teas. Just one sip and then one sip, one sip and then one sip. Wow. What are you sick with? I don't know. I have a sore throat. And that, oh, man. I think some sort of cold, maybe, because I'm also a little congested. Oh, well, you know what? It's the Santa Ana winds, baby. Yep. That's, you, that's it. They do go you know right, what that is? They go right into me. No. When the Santa Ana winds come in California, it gives you um, allergies. Potentially. So maybe you, maybe I'm just trying to help you and say maybe you're not sick. Maybe you just um That's need... worse because then I'll have it forever. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> this is Just Between Us, a variety <laughs> show filled with heartfelt advice. Ridiculous games. And brutal honesty. I was just trying to help you not think that you're sick. I don't mind being sick. It's not a big deal. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, because especially if we're doing a podcast, a sore throat, I mean, you're at a commission. You're benched. Yeah, well, once I get through this, I'll be fine, and I'll just rest for a couple days. Yeah. I just have a lot of reading to do, which doesn't really interfere with my throat. And not talk to anyone? Not talk to anybody? Just do, like, a, a, one of those things where you write stuff on Post-its? Yeah, but no one can read my handwriting. That's true. So I'm really, I'm fucked. If you woke up from a coma, like in a TV show, mm-hmm. and you had to like write, you know, what, who, who murdered you or whatever, or who. But how, okay, a quick question about that. <laughs> how am I waking up from the coma if I've already been murdered? <laughs> I meant who tried to murder you. Oh, okay. And then you, they were like, oh, wait, she can't talk, but she can write. And then you wrote it down. Everyone would just be like, eh? Maybe I could use like a phone or a keyboard. Yeah, that's what you'd have to do. Yeah, because in this um, scenario, it is current day. No, I'm it's, hoping. no, no, no. This. So let's say we go back in time okay. to like 1910. Uh-huh. You're somehow bludgeoned into a coma. Got it. And they meant to kill me. They just <laughs> fucked up. They were going to, yeah, they were trying okay. to kill you. It was like a mob thing. Got it. Oh, of course. <laughs> As in the mob or just a mob? Oh, good question. No, um, it was just like the mob. Got it. And, and they were also had formed quite a big mob around me. Yeah. Um, and then I am a detective and I'm tasked with solving my best friend's murder. And I like go and try to solve your murder. But I'm alive. Oh, I'm sorry. Your attempted murder. 
Here's the thing. I just wanted to sound so much more important than I was. Like I'm solving a murder, not just like an attempted murder. I feel like in this scenario, you you finish the job so that you can then solve a murder. <laughs> I finish the job and then I go, I, and then when I did it and then when they take me away, I say right to the camera, I solved it though, didn't I? But it's 1910, so there is no camera. <laughs> There's a lot of inconsistencies with this scenario. <laughs> And that's why I do hypotheticals. (laughs) We have got an incredible episode for you guys today. I'm geeking out. Uh, We're going to be talking to Lori Gottlieb, who is the famed author of Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, the huge NY Times bestselling book. She's a therapist, author, and the Dear Therapist columnist for The Atlantic. You're obsessed with her. I'm in love with her. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, great. And then later we're going to discuss misconceptions. What were things we always thought to be true but then weren't? A lot. Yeah. I've been wrong about so much. I have as well, big and small. I've got big ones, I got small ones. I can't wait. (laughs) But first, hit it. International question! International question! International question! Jacqueline, San Francisco. Jacqueline says, I would love to hear advice on a conundrum of mine regarding finances and relationships. Well, 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 you've come to the right place. (laughs) I'm currently a college student financially dependent on my family. We are financially comfortable as middle-class folk. I'm very fortunate to not have to worry about supporting myself quite yet while going to school. However, my boyfriend of two years is financially independent due to family circumstances. He struggles with balancing financial independence, going to school, and very complicated family dynamics. It's not my place to help out financially, and he won't accept help even if I offered. He's even lent money to a friend in need when he is barely getting by, which made me upset. What can I do to support him emotionally when I can't relate or truly understand what he is going through? How can I be there for him? I just don't know what to do or say. Uh, it's so common for people who don't have any money to be the ones lending money. (laughs) That is constantly the thing is if you are someone who I would do this all the time. If you're someone who like doesn't have a lot of money, you're the one who's who's I think because you feel like fuck it (laughs) or, you know, how stressed out that person. Yeah. And so you just like I don't think you can be upset at him for that. I mean, I know you can in in like a in a way in your brain, but like in your heart, you can't really be upset at him because it's just, it's so common. That's just like such a way of thinking. Um, Yeah, this is tough. I mean, I get this question a lot from people who listen to Bad With Money, uh, who are in relationships where they come from different money backgrounds. And I mean, I want to say that you eventually understand each other, but it is like pretty hard, depending on what kind of family background you come from, to understand someone from a different background. You just you just won't see things the same way. Um, but the thing is, is that you have to be open to listening and hearing what the other person is saying. And you can't assume that your solutions are the, the ones that they have to listen to. That what you that if they just did what you wanted them to do, then everything would be all better. Because it's it goes deeper than that. Well I don't even know if she is trying to give advice so much as like it's just so uncomfortable to to talk about. And I, I can't imagine that there isn't some resentment happening. Yes, for sure. I mean, uh, I think it goes both ways. I think the person who has money gets resentful because they're like, why can't you just do what I want you to do? And then the person who doesn't have money is resentful because they feel like they're not they're being misunderstood or they're being looked down upon. Uh, so it goes both ways. I feel like there is something that you guys can learn from each other 
that sometimes with couples, they don't see money as a, like, you know, you would assume that you can learn from each other in every other way, but there's stuff you can learn from each other in money stuff if you just are open to it. Like, yeah, but she's still in school. She's never made her own money yet. I know. I'm talking about like, like if you are just open to hearing him out and you don't try to fix it Mm -hmm. and you don't try to, you just take in and you're like, wow, I've never had this experience. I've never... Um, you know, lived this kind of life or thought about how hard this particular thing is, like, tell me more about it. Like, let me, rather than being like, well, this is how we fix it. This is how we fix it. Yeah, I mean, I grew up extremely privileged and it's always made me feel uncomfortable around people who have don't have the same background. And there's like a lot of, like, I feel a lot of, of shame around it sometimes and like that, you know, whatever I accomplish, it's because I had this leg up that other people didn't. Mm-hmm. And just the fact that I'm able to to really focus on what I want to do um, because money is, is not my main worry. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that, honestly, it, it just took time and life experience to not even fully understand, but just get a better grasp on what it is like to grow up differently in a different socioeconomic class. You know, like... Most of my friends do not come from a similar background as me. And so I think it's honestly just through, like, exposure and through, like, listening to them and through just reading about things and learning about things. But I think, honestly, it's one of those situations where you know you just kind of have to keep your mouth shut. (laughs) And you know that you just don't relate and that you can't, like, you you can't give advice because you never started in the same field like yeah even if you like say like now have like good money spending habits you never started in debt so starting in debt is so different than starting at zero yeah I mean I also on the flip side had to learn not to be resentful of of people who come from different backgrounds than me like I I I feel like there's a lot of discourse around you know uh people from lower uh, socioeconomic classes or lower income households, whatever my family was that like that of being like resentful of rich people. But I feel like we, if we're not listening to each other, we're not going to figure out on bad with money, right? The whole thing is transparency. And I think a lot of times people say, oh, transparency is good because it, it erases the shame of, of, um, broke or poor people talking about being broke or poor. Good. They don't have the shame. They have the transparency. But then when someone who comes from money talks about it and is like, hey, like this is the leg up that I've had. Uh, this this is sort of what goes on in our sphere. Uh, then they're attacked. And I'm like, no, no, no. When we talk about honesty and transparency around money, to me, that's everyone. Mm-hmm. Everyone needs to be able to talk about it, not necessarily not judged or whatever. And you can feel what you feel in your heart about it. And you can feel like bitter, but like everyone needs to be able to be open about it. Otherwise there's going to be no exchange of information. If you know, there's this um, book called uneasy street by Rachel Sherman. And it's like, she wrote this article called what the rich won't tell you. And it's like rich people trying to hide how much money they have, but that doesn't serve anyone. That doesn't serve us to, to like, you know, hide the economic inequality. So what? So that we can pretend that it doesn't exist. Like, I think that ignoring the disparity between you guys is not the answer. I think like both sides being completely open with each other like is is the only way that you're going to even come to some understanding, but also 
It has to be respectfully. It cannot be, and I'm guilty of this. I'm guilty of dating people who have more money than me and throwing it in their faces, for sure. Um, And like, I had to stop doing that and I have to stop. I've done it to my current partner. I think you have to talk about it in a way that is respectful, even though I know as someone in the boyfriend situation, it's, it is so um, tempting to just start being uh, defensive and, and accusatory. I think it's really important to make sure your partner knows that you don't assign value to money. Mm-hmm. That like you just happen to be born into the family you were born into and he happened to be born into the family he was born into. And that like you don't think of like your family as better or more deserving. Yes. And like you respect him you and respect you respect him. his decisions, even if you don't agree with his decisions. Right. And that, you know, I don't know the seriousness of your relationship, but that, like, if you choose to stay together, then, like, it will be a partnership where you're working together to start to have your own finances independent of your families. Um, and that, that, again, just like that there's not value assigned to how you were born. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if he's got a gambling problem, if you're trying to get married, but he has a, a ton of credit card debt that he's not working off, you know, there's, like— elements of of being financially Mm -hmm. different that are red flags. But if it's just what you're describing, I think you have to come at it in a way that isn't condescending. And he also can't be condescending back in a sort of way of like, I'm a martyr, which I've absolutely done to people. What do you think in terms of offering with money to help out? Do you think that's a good thing to do in a relationship? I think it can cause such problems. However, I did take money from an ex and I don't regret it. <laughs> <laughs> I I uh, I think it can cause a lot of problems because this ex, all, but this ex also said, even if we break up, I'm not going to come for the money. And to his credit, he never did. Yeah. He never came for the money. So, and and I asked multiple times, uh, is are you going to notice this is gone? At, and it was a good chunk of money. I said, are you going to even notice this is gone from your bank account? And he was like, no, not at all. So I was like, okay. And I took it. Um, and I was taking a leap of faith because he very well could have come come for that money when we split up. Uh, but he didn't. So like, I call it my emotional tax. <laughs> um, but I think you have to really try. I mean, I would even put stuff in writing if you like give, you know, if you loan money. Um, or I almost feel like it's like you. This I'm giving this to you versus yes. expecting it back. Yes, I mean, unfor- he did say he was giving it to me, but I did have a fear in the first like six months after we split up that he was going to renege on that. Yeah. But so I don't didn't. know. No, he didn't. Um, and let's say like he's having a breakdown over money, and she's with him. What does she do in that specific moment? Listen. Don't try to act like you know what he should do. Don't try to be like, don't try to be a fix it. I think you can ask open-ended questions, which is my new thing now that I love, (laughs) Uh, which is like, uh, well, what do you think would make this better? Or do you have friends who might, who are in the similar situations who might have um, good advice for you? Or, uh, you know, this has happened before. Uh, what do you think is a, a good way to prevent it? You know, not, don't like give them pointed stuff. Just like ask open-ended questions. I would get really, when I would cry about money and panic about money, I would get even deeper into my panic and even more defensive if people uh, gave me solutions, if mm-hmm. people told me what to do. Um, 
and and so like I think you have to gently ask questions without being like you have to do this you have to do that because that would just make me like truly fall on the floor of my house and cry (laughs) well maybe it's just listening it's just being a warm body yeah he's offering comfort part of the thing too is that you feel uh, helpless and hopeless and you and you also know that there is maybe something you could do but you just don't want to do it it's like that thing where you know what the like as the person who doesn't have money you know what the answer is and maybe you'll come up with some answers but you want to do it on your own timeline that's what I felt like I, I didn't I hated feeling stupid I hated my partner being like well, here, you big dummy. This is what you do. <laughs> so I was like, you don't know, especially my ex who had money. I was like, you don't know anything about this. Right. It's like, I don't know. It, it is. It causes a lot of, it, if you come from different um, families, it does cause a lot of problems. That is super true and, and a relatable issue. So you're not alone. Yeah, cut yourself some slack. It, it would be weird if this wasn't an issue. Totally. Like, this is very normal, and the fact that you care enough to even ask about this question probably means that you're compassionate enough where you guys will get through this. Yes, come at it with compassion and kindness. And even if he does throw barbs at you, don't rise to them. That's my advice. <laughs> if you want to submit your international questions, send it to justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. That's just between us, P-O-D at gmail.com. Coming up next, we have a juicy interview with Lori Gottlieb, Allison's hero. Just between us. Hey! Just between us. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, controversial segment known to all of podcasting, Tough Questions. Why don't you introduce our guest, Allison? Okay, so full disclosure, uh, today I took the URL of our guest's uh, website, sent it to my boyfriend, and said, this is the career that I want. (laughs) Uh, We are joined by Lori Gottlieb, therapist, author of Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, the New York Times bestseller, which is incredible. She's also a columnist for Dear, um, what is it, the Dear Therapist? It's called it's called the Dear Therapist column. It comes out every Monday in the Atlantic. Oh, ever oh heard I of love it? that. <laughs> so I, you have an unusual backstory. And also, I really want to talk to you a lot about your most recent book, because the idea of it is something I don't think anyone's ever really done before, which is that you're talking about both your patients and also your relationship with your therapist. Right. Yeah, you're right. Nobody's ever done it before because nobody in their right mind would wake up one day and say they wanted (laughs) to do this. Um, You know, so basically the book follows four very different patients as I work with them to, um, you know, through whatever struggles they're going through. And then there's a fifth patient in the book. And the fifth patient is me as I go through my own therapy with my therapist. And the reason that I did that, that I added that fifth patient is because I say at the beginning of the book that my most important credential is that I'm a card carrying member of the human race. And I really feel like I didn't want to be the clinician up on high and here's me and here are my patients. Mm -hmm. But I think we're all very similar. And I really wanted to show that by walking the walk and showing the other side of, of my own humanity. And a lot of times, like, I think old school therapy, it's very much like you're a blank slate. You don't share your personal life with your patients. And now 
pretty much anyone who wants to see you for private practice can learn all about you. <laughs> was that like a big decision to make? Yeah. I mean, that's pretty tricky. I was, I was a writer before I became a therapist and I still am a writer. And so I think that there are a lot of things that I wrote before I became a therapist where maybe I wouldn't have if I knew that yeah. later in life I, I would choose this profession. Um, but in the book, I really feel like I'm not writing it for my patients. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I was writing the book because I felt like it, w- it would serve people. It would, it would help people to see themselves in the stories that I tell in the book. You know, it's so much easier, I think, to see yourself through other people's stories. If someone says, you're like this or you do this, our instinct is to say, well, no, I'm not. No, I don't. But if you see, if you're reading someone else's story, you might recognize something about yourself. And I think that's what a lot of people are getting out of it. So I wasn't writing it for my patients. I was writing it for the general public because I feel like as a therapist, I treat people one-on-one or in a couple, maybe one-on-two, but I really don't get to bring this to a lot of people and a lot of people don't have access to therapy. So in a way, the book is kind of like a free therapy session for people who are not seeing me for therapy. Why did you call it you should talk to someone? Well, I said maybe you should talk to someone. Maybe, maybe, maybe. Because, you know, that's an expression that people use when someone is trying to tell somebody, maybe you should go see a therapist. And someone says that to me in the book. My best friend says that to me when I'm going through something. And that's how I end up in therapy. But the title doesn't mean maybe we should all go to therapists. It means maybe we need to talk more to each other. Maybe we don't need to be so isolated in our struggles. Maybe the more that we connect with other people, um, we will find that we aren't so alone. And I think that fact that you're pulling from your own experience is so powerful in that way. And that like, it, you know, I was just reading the part where you're saying that like, it's a relationship. It's not just like the client or the patient sitting there and, and it's all about them. It's about the relationship between them and the therapist. And like the more that you're in touch with yourself, I would think the better therapist that you are. Have you found that to be true? Yeah, absolutely. I think that you have to do your own work as a therapist. You can't do therapy and not um, ask yourself the same questions that the people that you're working with are about life and these universal existential questions that we all have about how can I love and be loved and how do I deal with regret and how do I make better choices and what are my blind spots and why do I keep ending up in the same situation over and over? Um, (laughs) You know, what are those patterns? Um, You really have to do the work or else you're not going to be very effective as a therapist. Yeah, who's the therapist therapist is always what I wonder. <laughs> right, right. It's like it's like the grand therapist. <laughs> yeah, my grand therapist. And then what is your well cuz I actually just went back to school uh, at Pepperdine as well to get a a master's in clinical psychology um coming from a, a writing background. And so can you speak to a little bit about what your journey was to get there? Yeah, I took the most non-linear, circuitous path (laughs) anybody could possibly take to becoming a therapist. When I graduated from college, I was working in film and doing development. And then I moved over to network television and I moved over to NBC when they were having a great year. It was the year that ER premiered and Mm. Friends premiered. So, um, you know, so it was the, it was the beginning of must-see TV, which was their, their Thursday night dominance. And Um, I spent a lot of time with our consultant on the show who was an emergency room doctor, and he would make sure that all of the trauma-based scenes were choreographed accurately. And, you know, he really consulted on making the show as realistic as possible. And so I spent a lot of time in the ER and I, 
I always was interested in story and the human condition. And I, that's why I, I went to go work in film and television. But when I saw real life um, in the ER and, you know, when you go to an emergency room, it's always an inflection point because nobody goes to an emergency room because they expected something to happen. Right. He kept saying to me, you know, I think you like it better here than you like your day job. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, you know, he's like, you should go to medical school. And I was in my like late twenties at that point. And I said, well, that's nice, but no, that's never happening. (laughs) Um, but then I went to medical school and I went up to Stanford and when I got there, it was, it was like the dot-com era, the beginning of the dot-com era and right before the the first bust. And, um, a lot of my professors were saying there was this new thing called managed care and why, why would I want to see people in these 15 minute intervals? They loved what they did, by the way. It was just that the whole landscape was changing. Mm -hmm. And because I was so interested in kind of being the, the family physician who guides people through their lives, um, it seemed like it was going to be really hard to do in that environment. And so I was also writing at that time. And I I left to become a journalist where I felt like I could help people to tell their stories. And it was much later when I had a baby and I was kind of, you know, the UPS guy would come with deliveries every day and I needed an adult to talk to (laughs) (laughs) really badly. And so I would kind of detain him and I'd say things like, how about those diapers and how's the weather and do you have kids? And he would kind of back away to his big brown truck or he would tiptoe to my door and very gently place the package so that I would not come (laughs) and talk to him. Oh my God. You know you can do low, right? When that happens. I think there are lower lows than that. Yeah. Not too bad. Well, in my postpartum life, that was a low. Yeah. (laughs) And um, so I called up the dean at Stanford and I said, maybe I should come back and do psychiatry. And she said, you know, if you do psychiatry, you're going to be prescribing antidepressants all day long. And you are really interested in this relationship. You're really interested in doing that kind of work. So why don't you get a graduate degree in clinical psychology and you can do the kind of work that you want to do? And it was like this aha moment of it seems so obvious and yet I hadn't thought of it. Um, And so I feel like I went from telling people stories as a journalist to helping people to change their stories as a therapist. And what I mean by that is everybody comes in with a story but it's not really an accurate version of the story. They're emphasizing certain things. They're leaving other things out. They're, um, you know, maybe their role in the story is they're the victim instead of the protagonist. Mm-hmm. So I'm really kind of editing their stories with them. And I feel like my writing background is so helpful in the work that I do as a therapist. What would you say to people who are like scared to go into therapy or start therapy? Well, I think that the people who don't go... Partly it's because there are some misconceptions about therapy. And one is that you're going to go into therapy, you're going to talk about your childhood forever, and you're never going to leave. And I think (laughs) that's what some people think therapy is. And it's not like that at all. It's very much about the present. And maybe it's about how the past informs the present, Mm -hmm. but it's a lot about the present and how you can create a different present because the present then informs the future. What you do now informs what's going to happen next. So it's very active and it's very focused on um, 
you know, making sure that you are growing and changing. And I like to say that insight is the booby prize of therapy, meaning you can have all the insight in the world, but if you don't make changes out in the world, the insight is useless. So if people think that therapy is you come and you download the problem of the week and then you forget all about your therapy and then you come back the next week and you talk more about your problems, you're not getting anything out of it. It's really about what did you do in between the sessions that was different from what you had been doing before. If you're not willing to change, the therapy is not going to be effective for you. So I think some people don't come because they think, well, I'm just gonna go and talk about my problems and I can talk to a friend about that. Not true. Um, I think another reason people don't go is because they minimize their problems. So many times people will think, well, yeah, you know, something feels off, but I have a roof over my head and I have food on the table and, you know, what do I have to complain about? And, you know, we would never do that with a physical symptom like, you know, I'm having chest pain. I should just wait it out. No, <laughs> nobody does that. Um, you go to the cardiologist before you have a massive heart attack. But people wait until they're having the equivalent of an emotional heart attack before they think, OK, now I should call a therapist. Yeah, there's like research where with anxiety, it, it takes people like up to like 20 years to get help and like depression, like six to eight years. Like, what? Yeah. It takes people a really long time to get help. And one of the, one of the main groups of people that avoid therapy are mental health professionals. Have, have you seen that in your experience? Well, in my book, I, I didn't even think I should go to therapy, even though I was going through this <laughs> sort of crisis. Um, you know, I just thought, well, I'll, I'll get through this. And so I think that's a very typical reaction. Most therapists do go to therapy. Um, so I should say that. But I think that sometimes we also feel like we can handle it. Mm -hmm. And and the fact is, most people, when you're going through something, it really helps a lot to be able to go and have a space where you could talk to somebody who's not living in your life in some way, who's not a family member or friend, that you can talk to about it and, and you can see things about yourself that you wouldn't normally see because of the fact that this person has the vantage point of not living your life. How long after um, your crisis, which was that your boyfriend of two years abruptly left because he suddenly decided he didn't want to live with your child, which I must say, unbelievable. I was up in arms about that. Wow. <laughs> That's so uh, awful. And I agree, uh, sociopath. But <laughs> like, I mean, I, as a writer who's, who's, you know, obviously written about my trauma as well, like how, how much time needed to pass before you felt like, okay, I can actually dive in and, and write this with the right amount of hindsight? Yeah. Well, first of all, as you'll see in the book, it starts off with that story, right? So my version of the story, and I very specifically say my version, because going back to this whole idea that we're unreliable narrators of mm -hmm. our own lives, um, my version was what my friend said, which was exactly what you said, which was, oh, he's a sociopath, which I did not disagree with at the time. Um, but then when I went to therapy and my therapist did not, much to my surprise and shock, validate my story, <laughs> even mm -hmm. though I know better as a therapist. Um, you know, my therapist was, was really curious about, well, how did you not see that he was not interested in, in like being around a child when you dated for two years and you were planning to get married? How did, how did you not see that? Mm -hmm. Um, and so it was, as you'll see in the book, it goes from this place of, 
he seems like the villain. And then very quickly, you start to realize, wait a minute, I had a role in this. And at, by the end of the book, you see, I'm convinced, I'm trying to convince people that actually he's a really good guy. <laughs> and we both were really confused about what we wanted. Um, and you see that with all of the patients in the book, that, that you start off thinking one thing about them. And then as the book goes on, you start to change your view of them and you change your perspective and you feel very differently about each of those people at the end of the book than you did at the beginning. How did you get their permission to write about them? Um, so first of all, because I was a writer beforehand and I've written about things in the therapy room for like my New York times pieces or my Atlantic pieces. Um, I have a, a disclosure in my informed consent that people who come to me know that I might be writing about them. Um, but I have to, of course, protect their identity. Mm -hmm. This was a different situation because I was writing so specifically about them and for, you know, uh, for a long time in the length of a book, as opposed to like a quote or two in, in an article. Um, so I had to ask for permission and I was very careful about who I decided to ask. There were certain people where I felt like I didn't want to ask because even if they might've said yes, um, it might've, it might've not been the best thing clinically for mm -hmm. me to do. I also wasn't, I didn't ask anybody that I was currently seeing. So I felt like I couldn't write about people and also be seeing them, even if I was writing about something that happened five years before, um, if I was still doing therapy with them, I thought that it would, it would contaminate the work. So you said each person, you kind of learn that they're more complicated than you thought. What, what has the takeaway been from that element of, of the book? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with how we protect ourselves from pain. So the ways that people behave tells you something about them. So like John is the first person you meet in the book and he's this very abrasive, insulting person in the beginning. Um, you know, he has a lot of narcissistic traits. You've all met a John. I think like, you know, when people read the book, everybody says, oh yeah, I know. I know someone just like that. Mm -hmm. And so they form this opinion of him. The first thing he says to me was that he didn't want his wife to know that he was in therapy. So he was going to pay me in cash at the end of every session. And then he made this quote unquote joke saying, you'll be just like my mistress. And then he amended that and said, actually, you're not the kind of person I'd choose as a mistress, more like my hooker. Oh my and so God. people say, why would you treat someone like that? Why would you take that person on in your, in your practice? And it's because I knew that he was protecting himself from something. I had no idea what it was. And I don't want to do any spoilers here, but I had, I, I had no idea that it would be what it actually was, but I knew it was something. And, um, and I think that that's why he was there. So he, he the ostensible reason he came was because everybody was, you know, an idiot and he was, had to manage everything and how could he manage all of his stress? That's, and he was had insomnia and that's why he came. But what he was really there to do was to talk about the unspeakable was to talk about the thing he couldn't share with anybody. And the way that he protected himself from getting too close to anybody was to be really abrasive and really jokey and, and just kind of keep people at bay. So I, I think that, you know, what it, what I was trying to show is that you have to really get to know somebody to know who they are. Mm -hmm. And so many times all of us walk around with masks, right? We do that in our, in our own lives. We don't want people to see who we really are. But once you show the truth of who you are, that's what draws people toward you. That's what connects us. And so I want people to feel more open and feel less shame around just being human. 
Yeah, I mean, at the very least, it's the empathy of realizing that other people are complex and going through things or come from situations that you ha- could not have anticipated, have never encountered before. Um, it's hard. It's hard to come at people with similar to what you're saying with John, like with an assumption of this isn't about me and they this is has a reason or at least there's some sort of justification in their mind for why they're behaving this way. Like it really takes a lot of, I've had to work on that myself. And it's like, you can't control what other people are going to do, but you can control how you view it. And you can control how you respond to it. But I also think it applies to how we, the compassion that we need to have for ourselves. So, so many people are so unkind to themselves and they don't realize it. And so they have this script in their heads and it just plays over and over like, you know, well, that was so stupid. Um, or God, you look terrible today. Or, you know, just these things that we say to ourselves that are so unkind. And I think that when you have more compassion for yourself, you will also have more compassion for other people. So I think it starts with, making sure that that voice in your head is kind. And it doesn't mean not holding yourself responsible for things or uh, letting yourself off the hook. It just means, can you find a place of compassion for yourself? Because you can't grow or change if you don't have compassion for yourself. You're not going to grow or change by being really mean to yourself. We love to say that on this podcast. (laughs) I know. We have said that a bunch of times, actually. It's so true. And I, you know, when I feel myself slipping back into that negative self-talk, which is how I grew up, I, I, my body feels different. Like your entire day feels different. It has such an effect on you than when you're nice to yourself. Well, yeah, it's almost like you're playing this radio station that's like this really abrasive mm-hmm. radio station that always puts you in a bad mood. And it's like, just turn the dial, you know, yeah. just like, change to a change to the nice station. Why do you have to be on that? Why do you have to listen to that radio station all day? What sense do you have that in terms of how many people have like an accurate view of themselves, whether or not they're hiding it from you? Do you feel like people are in tune with who they really are? Or are a lot of people kind of even ignorant of that? I think it's hard for us to be objective about ourselves. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one of the things that therapy can really help people with is it helps you to hold up a mirror to yourself and and to look at yourself in ways that maybe you've been unable or unwilling to do before. And that's why we have blind spots, I think, because we have so much shame around certain things. And so we don't want to look at them. And I think that in therapy, it's a place where you can look at these things and not feel shame, but you can say, be curious about them. You can say, oh, isn't that interesting? As opposed to, well, aren't I terrible? I think when we try to look at them by ourselves, we, the minute we start to look at that, we think like, oh God, this makes me feel bad about myself. But in therapy, it's, it's really a place of, oh, this is interesting. I wonder why I do that. I wonder what I can do differently. And to have someone there to be like, it's okay that you do that, but let's maybe work on not doing it. <laughs> you know, like this isn't like, well, right. this isn't make you a bad person. It's just like something you've experienced. And now we're going to work on maybe better co- coping mechanisms. Right. Well, that's the difference between something I talk about and maybe you should talk to someone, which is the difference between idiot compassion and wise compassion. Mm-hmm. So idiot compassion is what our friends do. They always kind of 
back up our story, right? right? So it's like, oh, you know, you dodged a bullet. That guy was a loser, even though like we know that every time you date someone, you go through his phone and he breaks up with you, right? <laughs> so, so, you know, or it's like, yeah, your boss is so, that's so terrible that you didn't get that promotion, even though we know that you really didn't put in the work or that you have trouble getting along with your coworkers mm. or, you know, whatever it is, we just say, yeah, yeah, you know, you go girl. And that's not very helpful. What's helpful is wise compassion, which is saying, what, what is your role in this? You know, so, so there, yes, there, there's this stuff that's happening out there and it's real, but then what is your role in this? And, and if you don't like the situation, what can you do to change it? Maybe that means removing yourself from the situation. Mm -hmm. Maybe that means noticing what you do so that, you know, why are people always breaking up with you? Well, what's that about? Right. I feel like there's a lot of pushback though, from people when, in therapy sometimes. I've had exes who I'm like, go to therapy and then they go to therapy and then they're like, well, I, you know, my therapist said this, this, and this, and that's patently wrong. And then they don't go back. <laughs> right. So I think the thing about therapy is that it has to do with timing and dosage, right? So when you're trying to help somebody to see something about themselves that maybe they're reluctant to see, um, you have to make sure that you're doing it at the right time and also that you're doing it at the right dosage, meaning you don't say all of it at once. Mm -hmm. You kind of plant little seeds like, well, isn't it interesting that blah, 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 or I wonder about this. And then they say what they say and you see whether or not you can move forward with it or whether you need to back off and maybe continue next time with it. In terms of friends, though, do you think it's appropriate to, to exercise wise compassion in the chance that your friend is going to get really mad at you? <laughs> like, is that a responsibility as a friend? Because like, it definitely feels like the easier choice to just be, you know, a yes man. Yeah. I mean, I think that if you really want to help your friend, there's a way to do it that's not being their therapist, but that's being their friend, which is to say, you know, I, I see that you're really struggling with this. I wonder if maybe maybe talking to a therapist would help because I know this is really hard. You, you know, you're really, this is how, this is, this is so hard. You keep like getting into these situations with these guys and it just is not working out. Um, you know, that's one way to do it, to kind of remove yourself from it. And also to normalize therapy to say like, you know, I've been to therapy and I learned so much about, you know, what was going on in my life and what was working and what wasn't. And this seems like, you know, I really care about you and maybe that would help. So that, that's one way to do it. Another way is to say, like, God, you know, what do you think is going on here? Why do you think this keeps happening? Yeah. <laughs> Let Ask, them answer it. <laughs> I was just watching – this is I – can't, I can't get into the whole thing about why, but I was just watching videos online about uh, how to talk to someone who's in a cult. And they kept saying <laughs> – and they kept – my life's weird. Um, but they kept saying, like – uh, ask open-ended questions. Don't accuse them of anything. Don't accuse the cult of anything. Just keep being like, oh, can I, like, I'd love to read some of the stuff that you're getting your information from or be like, oh, well, how does it make you feel when you go there? Or like, you know what I mean? Like, it's all these sort of open-ended rather than accusatory. And it sounds like what you're talking about. <laughs> Well, right, because we're kind of in the cult of our own story about ourselves, yes. right? It's very hard for us to um, try to have flexibility around our stories. Whenever somebody comes in, I'm listening to their story, but I'm also listening to their flexibility with their story. Are they are they willing to consider the possibility that there's another version of the story mm -hmm. than, than just what they're telling me? 
learning that is something that can change and that the way that you view yourself and like who you are is something that is flexible is like one of the most powerful messages I've ever taken in. Huge. Like I used to, you know, was very rigid in like the idea of who I was and knowing that like who I am can change in any moment is liberating because I didn't always like who I was and I felt stuck as that person. But then you realize, oh, I could be somebody else. It's kind of like clothes that don't fit you anymore. It's like a lot of people as adults are walking around with clothes that they, you know, that sort of their childhood clothing mm-hmm. and they, they don't realize like, wait a minute, that's, that's not fashionable anymore. And also it doesn't fit. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so, you know, it's time to say like, wait a minute, maybe that's not, maybe, maybe I need to like change my wardrobe here. And um, and once you like let go of that childhood clothing that no longer fits, all of a sudden you see the world and the possibilities for yourself in a much broader way. It's really life changing. And also sometimes the stories that we grew up with um, were mediated through the eyes of people who, um, you know, maybe had their own limitations. Mm. And so I, I think that sometimes we forget that that wasn't set in stone. But I think, you know, we still walk around with those stories unless we examine them and say, wait a minute, how valid is this story? Is this, is this really true? Is this really who I am? Is this really what I'm capable of? That's why I think it's so important to like, let kids be who they, you know what I mean? Like to not put ideas of who the the kid is on the kid. I had a patient who was obsessed with cheese and <laughs> as a kid. Who among us isn't? As a, as a kid, like, like meaning, meaning like she went through this phase when she was really young um, or she just like always wanted cheese, like as a toddler. And, and then she didn't like cheese anymore, but because everyone always said she was like the cheese girl, yeah. she, she could, she never told anybody, I don't like cheese. <laughs> and so, oh my God. And, and I love that story only because it wasn't until she was an adult when she finally like told everybody and like her, it rocked everybody's like view of her. Cause her right. whole identity was like, they would like, every time they came over to her house, they'd like bring her cheese and they would like <laughs> give her birthday cards with cheese. And she really like, couldn't tell anybody. I don't, I haven't liked cheese since I was seven. Um, oh, right. Um, that's amazing. That's, that's what we do with these stories that people tell us, like you're this way or like you're the difficult one. Like mm-hmm. that's often like in a family, right? You're sensitive. You're very sensitive. When it's like, no, there was a lot of chaos going around, you right. know, going on in the house, and I was reacting to it in the way that someone who was not in denial would react to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are all these labels that we get. You're the sensitive one. You're the athletic one. You're the smart one. You're the pretty one. You're the whatever one. And and I think that people have a hard time when they get labeled early on because they don't get to say for themselves, well, what am I like? And also, most of us are not one thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> most of us are many things and we're different things at different moments. And I also think that, especially as someone who was labeled the sensitive one, you know, I worked hard to create coping skills so that I wouldn't be the sensitive one. But then it's like when someone keeps saying that that's what you are, that's going to annoy you and then you act sensitive. So you like get caught in this like cycle where it's really hard to break through um, when you've made a change. Well, also the way that people get labeled as sensitive is that it has a negative connotation. So it's not like, you know, whereas being sensitive can be a really positive thing. So mm-hmm. if you're sensitive, that means that you have a lot of empathy, you have a lot of compassion, you see the world in shades of gray and not in black and white. Um, you know, there's so many great qualities that are associated with sensitivity. And so if a kid maybe is 
more sensitive, let's say, that's something that people don't generally say. And that's so great. It's so great that you're sensitive. Most right. people say, you're sensitive. Don't be so difficult. Yes. Right. Wow. Totally. That just blew my mind. <laughs> um, would you like to play a game show? Uh, I don't know if I'd like to, but I, I'm willing. <laughs> that's honestly all we need. Truly, that's, okay. enough, that's enough of an in. Yes. <laughs> all right. I'm in. Count me in. Okay. So this game is called Hypotheticals. You and Gabby are the contestants. I'm going to give you a series of hypothetical situations. You can ask as many clarifying questions as you want. And then you tell me what you would do in that situation. And I decide if I like your answer. It's completely arbitrary, and there are no rules. Okay, our first game is America's favorite game show. Would you stay with this cheater? Your significant other of 15 years admits that they are having an emotional affair with their therapist. When you ask what that entails, your significant other says, "They, I, I tell them everything and look to them for guidance and strength. <laughs> they even text their therapist on occasion, but almost never get a response. Would you stay with this cheater who clearly has never been to therapy before? Oh, my God, Lori. I'm so confused. The person has never been to therapy, but they're having an emotional affair with their therapist? Well, this is their first time in therapy, and they clearly don't understand what therapy is. Oh, I see. I see. Okay. Okay. Um, So it sounds like the therapist hasn't had a conversation with the patient about what the boundaries are. Um, so I'm not real clear on that, but that would be number one. Um, number two, um, you know, I think that it's normal to feel attached to your therapist and to feel like you can talk to your therapist about things that sometimes it's hard to talk to your partner about. So I don't know that I would call this an emotional affair. I think this person is trying to be more open and vulnerable and, and for the first time is able to do that and is feeling the sense of, of freedom and almost giddiness at, at finally being able to express some feelings. So I would, if I were the partner, I would be curious about what makes it hard for that person to talk to me, right, as the partner. Um, you know, why is it easier to talk to your therapist than it is to talk to me? What's going on in our relationship that makes communication so hard? Well, that was a very reasonable answer. <laughs> like, man, you, that's just the regular things you would do with a therapist. I don't know that you understand the concept of an emotional affair. (laughs) Right. Uh, Like, that's so weird, dude. Uh, So maybe I would leave just because I would be like, oh, you don't understand the client, the client therapist relationship. Like they feel so guilty that they've been having this emotional affair. guilty I guess I would be I would pat them on the head and comfort them and be like you sweet dumb baby I love you so much uh this is normal for therapy don't worry your pretty little head about it well in a shocking twist they then have a physical affair (laughs) (laughs) all right so first is report the therapist to the licensing board that's number one um no I'm I'm absolutely serious um exactly that's that's really, that's, that person will lose their license immediately. So good. Um, and then, you know, the second, so that's really twisted and, and effed up, but, um, (laughs) but, and then the other part of it is just having an affair with someone. A lot of people think, well, you know, it's very cut and dried and a lot of people, and you'd be surprised how many people, a lot of couples recover from affairs very well. 
Um, but, but he has to put, he has to put, the thing is, if both people aren't willing to put in the hard he's work. He's not he, willing. <laughs> oh, well, okay. So there's always like, it's just, so if he's not willing, then there's, there's nothing to do there. See, you can't, you can't do all of the work yourself. Right. It's, it won't, it, nothing will happen. So if, if both people are not willing, then the relationship is effectively over. Yeah. Cause they actually get married to their therapist. But you get you get invited. Yeah, but you know, then that therapist is not a therapist anymore because they were unethical. Yeah, but your partner was independently wealthy. Ah, lots of so the, the partner the partner was it was an investment banker and they were <laughs> happily dysfunctionally after. Yes, <laughs> as so many investment bankers do. Our next game: Are you a terrible parent? Your child refuses to use the bathroom, even though they are five and completely normal developmentally. On their first day of kindergarten, you refuse to give them a pull-up and instead let them go to school commando, since they hate the feel of underwear. Within an hour, your child has pooped in the sandbox during recess. Oh my god. Everyone notices and calls them sand poop for the next (laughs) five years. But they start to use the bathroom. Are you a terrible parent? To clarify, you move after five years. The kids in your old town still call your kids sand poop. (laughs) All right. So this is really interesting. So, um, you know, I have a child and um, I always say that the the good thing about being the child of a therapist is that nothing gets swept under the rug. But the bad news is that you'll be totally screwed up anyway. (laughs) So take my answer with a grain of salt is what I'm trying to say. Um, You know, I think that I would want if a kid at five years old who doesn't have any developmental issues is not is not potty trained. Um, I would want to figure out sort of usually there's there's a, it's a behavioral issue. It's it's not it's like an emotional behavioral issue. It's not it's not an issue of they can't. It's an issue of there's some reason that they don't want to. And so, you know, it's very unusual that something like that would happen and so at, at age five. And so you'd have to kind of understand more about that. I, no, I but probably, your choice, but you decide that this is your method. Oh, also, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> Here's my thing. Turn it around the way they do in Billy Madison. Be like, everyone poops in the sandbox. Are you kidding me? Have you ever seen a cat? It's cool to poop in the sandbox. And then I would make shirts that say like, sand poop 2024. And then <laughs> Allison's, Allison can't look at me right now. Allison's dying. And then, and then I would make everyone in our family wear sand poop 2024 shirts to make the kid feel better. The end. I'm an amazing parent. <laughs> I would say that is the ultimate helicopter parent right there. Thank you so much. But one You're day welcome. they start a band called Sand Poop and it's very popular. And they win tons of Grammys. Yeah. So I think good parent. I mean, not really, but maybe. <laughs> um, okay, our final game. Would you lie or tell the truth? While in an important meeting, the person making the presentation's fly is down. Before they start the PowerPoint, they ask, everything good? Not knowing that their underwear is showing. Would you lie or tell the truth? Wait. I have a follow-up. Okay. (laughs) Like, how many people are in the room and how far away are you sitting from them? There are 22 people in the room. Yeah. And you are uh, about six feet away from the presenter. Is it possible for me to go, hey, like... Uh, Jonas, can I talk to you outside for a second and then take him outside? That would cause a riot. Why? Because you're in the middle of a very important negotiation. 
But if I would be like, then that's kind of a But you're on the other side. Oh, so I don't care about this guy. No, you do, but he's your rival. You can't, you know, it's just like not protocol. (sighs) Is he standing or sitting? Standing. And what color is his underwear? Hot pink. Oh, no, buddy. So you can't even be like, oh, it's just my pants look a certain way. And you can see some pubic hair. No! (laughs) Oh, my God. I think you have to say something. What would you say? I'd just be like, "Um, your zipper's down. And then they'd be like, oh, and then they'd fix it. And then we just move on. I couldn't say anything. Really? I'd be too embarrassed. I, I, I would always want someone. I have to agree here. I would absolutely say something. Yes, I really? want people. I want people to tell me. Tell me if there's shit in my teeth. <laughs> tell me if yes. my hair's standing up. Help me out. <laughs> okay, I once went through an entire day at work with. I went to the bathroom and I was wearing a dress and I came back and my and my dress was in my underwear. <gasps> And like that whole afternoon, no one told me oh, and no. it scarred me. It was horrible. Because then um, you don't trust those people. Fuck those people. Right. And so, um, so I wanted someone to tell me this. So I would definitely tell him. Me too. Like loudly in front of everybody. I think you make it funny. You know, like, yeah. I think it's just like you say something funny and, and, you know, he says everything good. And it's like, well, it will be once you, you know, yeah, make a joke. Um, <laughs> and and everybody will laugh and then they'll move on. Yes. Wow. And then you win you win the deal. You get a really great rate for whatever he was presenting on. Yeah, I don't understand what my job is in this scenario, <laughs> but okay. Thank you so much for joining us on this wild journey. Where can people find out more about you and your work? Uh, they can find me at uh, my website, which is lauriegottlieb.com. Um, they can um, they can get my book. Maybe you should talk to someone at bookstores everywhere and on Amazon. They can follow me uh, at my Dear Therapist column at The Atlantic. And I'm launching a new podcast uh, that Katie Kirk is producing for iHeart, which will be out in a couple months. And it's called Dear Therapist. And if people want to write into that, they can write to advice at iheartmedia.com. And um, in that podcast, we not only answer their questions, um, but we also bring them back to find out what happened. Ooh, I love that. Thank you so much. Thanks Lori. so much. Really appreciate it. Stick around. After the break, we'll be talking about misconceptions. What were things we always thought to be true, but then weren't? Topics. back to just between us it's time for topics x x x x x x x x x how can i make these x's more interesting i i was interested oh you were they're the same every week so what much of do? this is the same every week <laughs> i mean what can i do to make the x x x part like more interesting sing it x x x x x that's not bad there you go i just felt like singing was your jam in this podcast yeah actually take that back yeah, Tamika, cut that. Cut that. <laughs> so this week, I kind of wanted to talk about misconceptions. Because uh, I just feel like the older I get, the more I realize how wrong I've been about so many different things. What do you mean? Just like my idea of like how the world worked or like how why people behave the way they behave. Um, yeah. Like I think a really big thing for me is like I always assume that everybody wanted to get married. Oh, fascinating. And that if you were single, then that was something you didn't want and you were miserable. And that's not true. Yeah. I mean, why do you think you believed that? 
Because I think that that's, like, what's shown on TV. Mm-hmm. And that's, like, you're never, like, it's very rare for, like, the message to be anything other than that. Yeah, that's true. So you were influenced by pop culture? Yes, it was not my fault at all. Or <laughs> <laughs> or you were influenced maybe by your parents' happy marriage? Yeah, and, like, that just seemed like, you know, in the goals of what you want, you want to have a partner and you want to have a house, you want to have kids. I mean, honestly, even a big misconception was that everybody wanted to have kids. Wow. When did you realize that wasn't true? Yesterday. I don't know. I mean, (laughs) I guess a while ago, but definitely not as like a young adult. Yeah. I mean, you had an aunt and uncle who didn't have kids, but I didn't like know of anybody really. Yeah. Who was in it. My aunt and uncle don't have kids because of HIV, but yeah. (laughs) Which is, so I had, I feel like I learned some lessons real young. But I'm just saying, like, you had that in your life. Like, I didn't know anybody who was married who didn't have children. Yeah, that is interesting. I feel like I did growing up. I knew people that didn't have kids that were married. For for reasons other than HIV. Uh, HIV. But, uh, yeah, that was a big one. Um, I think I, I mean, obviously, it's no surprise to longtime fans of, of me and Allison that I think that I was very self-righteous and that I, uh, was wrong about a lot of things. I think I was also very binary about gender in the sense of like men are like this, women are like this, mm-hmm. and men are terrible and women are great. Yeah. Um. And uh, I think like I really, I really was on one in like a feminism 101 sort of way <laughs> uh, that now I'm like, oh boy. Because um, I think I hadn't, I think I was like on the right side of it I just hadn't learned enough and wasn't wasn't nuanced enough wasn't nuanced enough and like you know I didn't understand that there were feminists that were like trans exclusionary and that that was terrible and bad and that that was like people who identified that way which like honestly we shouldn't even include them in feminism but like you know what I mean I just didn't realize that there was there was anything more nuanced going on And then I was like, let me just push myself to the forefront and talk about this all the time as if I know fucking anything. I think that one of my biggest misconceptions was that adults knew what they were doing. No, I don't know anything. Like that adult, yeah, that like, and and just like a trust in institutions that I used to have, uh, like specifically like the police. Like I definitely like, you know. 10 years ago, 15 years ago, it was very much like, they're the police. They save us. Yeah. And now I'm like, oh, no, there's a lot of issues within police and the fact that that they don't have an outside third party investigating their misconduct and they investigate themselves. And there's such a history of racism and discrimination and, like, like, learning all of that was a huge, like, You know, because you go from feeling safe to not feeling safe, even though you're white. So it's like, I can't even imagine how unsafe people of color feel in this country. Right. That's And that comes from awareness. Like a lot of our misconceptions, I think, are built by just complete unawareness. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're not born. Nobody is like born aware of everything. Right. So it's your job to do the research and not be... So sure of yourself. I mean, that was my mistake, was being so sure of myself about every fucking thing. And then, like, if I just did a little bit of digging, I would have seen that it wasn't true or that there I, there were other perspectives. You know, one of the biggest misconceptions culturally we had was that MSG was bad for you. 
Oh my God. First of all, I don't even get me started on like all the things that we believed that like were just racist or sexist. But yeah, like MSG is not bad for you. Um, Like someone like wrote like a fake letter to an editor that got taken seriously. And then it become this like crazy phase of everyone like getting rid of MSG and like proudly saying that their food didn't have MSG. And meanwhile, like it's not bad for you at all. And the whole thing of like it just served to like like fuck with Chinese people in Chinese restaurants. Yeah. Uh, And then like. Just that our culture in general and our society in general can get, like, hoodwinked so easily about so many things. So easily. (laughs) And that there's just, like, things that we believe even now that just, like, are not true. I mean, think about how long people thought that the earth was flat. Like, what is— I mean, it is flat, and I think that is something we should be talking about. (laughs) No, but what is that—what is our version of that 100 years from now? If we still exist. (laughs) You know, like— like, I'm sure we think so many things scientifically that aren't true. Oh, absolutely. Did you know that people used to think that tomatoes were poisonous? So because plates were made out of lead, mm-hmm. people uh, would get sick from eating tomatoes. And so they thought tomatoes were poisonous. And so people didn't eat tomatoes for so long. And then it turned out that it was just that tomatoes are very acidic and they were soaking up the lead from the plates. And so it was actually the plates that were poisonous. But instead, everyone stopped eating tomatoes. Oh, my God. Even just the misconception that, hey, let's let's make plates out of lead. Oh, we made walls out of asbestos. <laughs> we made everything we out of lead. We were nuts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I feel like being really sure of anything is uh, a terrible mistake because I just feel like I had so many misconceptions to bring it all back around. Here is like a list of some of the biggest misconceptions. One of them is the don't eat and swim. Really? Yeah, that's not true. It doesn't increase risk of cramps. Why do we think that? (laughs) I have no idea. It says a full stomach will make you short of breath. Like you can fucking swim. Yeah. They just want to keep the kids from having a good time. You know what it was? I think it's so that they don't puke in the pool. I mean, maybe. That would be my guess. Undercover cops don't have to identify themselves as cops. This is a Hollywood-induced myth. (laughs) Yeah, they do have to. Well, see, pop culture. No, they absolutely have to say that they're cops. No, they do not. What? That's the misconception. They don't have to say that they're cops. What? That's a Hollywood-induced myth. Reporters have to say that they're reporters. That's different. I mean, maybe this is a myth of myths, but... There's more ethics for journalists than there are for cops. We already knew that. Satan rules hell. It doesn't actually say this anywhere in the Bible. Satan doesn't rule hell. Satan's a fallen angel. Well, there you go. Um, oh, another thing is lie detectors, like, do not work. I know! <laughs> lie detectors fully don't work. And they keep using them. It's so weird. They can judge, like, your heart rate. Um, but if you can keep your heart rate down, then they'll be like, oh, okay. Yeah. Like, you can con a lie detector test. Yeah. Absolutely. And I've been studying to con them for years, just in case. (laughs) I bet I could, no problem. All I've been doing the last 10 years is figuring out how to be calm. (laughs) You know what? That's fair. It's perfect training for passing a lie detector test. Why don't we get someone on this show to do a lie detector test on us? Great. That would be kind of funny. I've done one before. Oh, yeah, you did. Yeah. I've never done one. It's I weird. Be, I would be curious because I feel like I would say things that I think are true and the lie detector test would be like, no. And I would be like, do I even know myself? That is the question of the episode. Tamika, do you want to come on in and share your misconceptions? Misconceptions. Um, I think I used to think everyone's constantly judging you mm-hmm. as a teenager. Oh, yeah. Um, how people react to you, how they talk to you, how they behave. 
exclusively has to do with their relationship with you, which is not true. You know, most people are lost in their own world or wrapped up in their own drama, and that influences a lot of people's behavior. So that was a misconception, I think, that was really helpful. Oh, it's the best. Thinking about themselves and not thinking about you at all. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody cares about you. It's amazing. (laughs) It's so freeing. Exactly. Or if you do something weird that they'll, like, think about it once and then, like, in two days, they won't remember it. Unless you're sand poop. Unless you poop, yeah, in a sandbox. (laughs) Then they'll remember it for years and years and years. But you can monetize that. Absolutely. Make it a brand. That was actually the funniest moment, I think, of the episode was Lori taking hypotheticals so seriously. (laughs) Well, she is a professional. You know, these are the kinds of questions she gets asked all the time. I'm sure. I'm sure she's encountered stuff just like that in therapy. (laughs) What did we learn from the episode? Um, I learned, I liked Lori talking about her patient, John, and how he came in so hard and Mm -hmm. how she just had to, why would you treat someone like that? And that she had to figure out, like, what was actually going on. I loved that. I thought that was, like, that was something that a lot of people could stand to learn. And I just learned it recently and I and I could learn more about it. Yeah, I think I think everything she said was like even if it was just like reinforcing things I thought to be true but wasn't sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Like the things I learned were really just like reframing things that I I knew. Like I wrote down some quotes. Oh, <laughs> oh you did? I love I quotes. Did. I love that when she said I really loved when she said everyone walks around with masks. And then once you take them off and show who you really are, that's what draws people towards you. Mm-hmm. Oh. It's something that you know, but it's just nice to have that framed yeah. in an eloquent way. Yeah. Um, what do we rate it? I rate it 12 out of 7 money. Okay. 12 <laughs> out of 7, just mo- not monies. No, just money. Money. 12 yeah. out of 7 money. I'm still recovering from my coma where I was almost murdered. <laughs> Yeah, I rate it uh, uh, 1910 out of 1910 solving Allison's murder. (laughs) Even though she's still alive. (laughs) I want to be a hero. (laughs) Tamika? I don't know. This wasn't a a super funny episode. Hey! Um, I'm sorry, sand poop wasn't funny. It's it's close to butt apple in my heart. How do you rate that, though? I'm not as clever as you guys. 10 out of 10 sand poops, baby. There you go. That's my answer then. Sand poop 2024. <laughs> I bet so many kids shit in sandboxes. All the time. <laughs> Thank you so much to Lori Gottlieb for being our guest. Just Between Us is hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabby Dunn. Our engineer is Brendan Burns. He also composed our killer theme music. Our producer is Tamika Weatherspoon, and our supervising producer is Josephine Martirana. Our executive producer is Chris Bannon. Just Between Us is a production of Stitcher. Why did they attack me? <laughs> the people? Yeah, the mob. Um, the mob of mob. You owed them money. Ah, that you makes owed sense. them seven out of twelve out of seven money. Oh man. <laughs> Stitcher. 